0: Genesis 14. At this time, Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Elassar, Keralamor, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, went to war against Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Sinab, king of Adma, Shemember, king of Zebuim and the king of Bela, that is Zor. All these later kings joined forces in the valley of Sidim, the Salt Sea. For twelve years they had been subject to Geralomor, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year Kerilimor, the king allied with him, went out and defeated the Rephanites in Ashtaroth, Karaim and Zuzites in Ham, the Emites in Shavai Kerathim, and the Horites in the hill country of Seir, as far as Ai Paran near the desert. Then they turned back and went to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and they conquered the whole territory of the Amalekites, as well as the Amorites who were living in Hezron Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the King of Adma, the King of Zeobim, the king of Bela, that is Zor, marched out and drew up their battle lines in the valley of Sidim against Lamar, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariok, king of Elassar, four kings against five. Now, the valley of Sidim was full of tar pits, and when the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some of the men fell into them, and the rest fled to the hills. The four kings seized all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food, and they went away. He also carried off Abraham's nephew Lot and his possessions since he was living in Sodom. One who had escaped came and reported this to Abraham the Hebrew. Now, Abraham was living near the great trees of the Mamre of Amorite, a brother of Eshkol and Aner, all of whom were allied with Abraham. When Abraham heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out the 318 trained men born in his household and went in pursuit as far as Dan. During the night, Abraham divided his men to attack them, and he routed them, pursuing them as far as Hobah, north of Damascus. He recovered all the goods and brought back his relative lot and his possessions, together with the woman and the other people. After Abraham returned from defeating keri Lamar, and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shiva, that is, the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God most high. And he blessed Abraham saying, blessed be Abraham by God most high, creator of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hands to the Lord God most high, creator of heaven and earth, and have taken an oath that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or a thong of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. I will accept nothing but what my men have eaten and the share that belongs to the men who went with me to Yanair, Eshkol and Mamre let them have their share and we give thanks to God for his word and we also know why Al is not here because um, that was a very difficult reading wasn't it? Whew. yeah no, he's, he's actually preaching in New he's not just avoiding the reading let's pray and ask God to help us Father, as we come to this text, it's not an easy text, and like any text, we need your help, and so we pray that your Spirit would be at work, helping us to see what it is you want us to see, and to hear what it is you want us to hear. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Temptation Allures, a story of power and might and pleasurable gain. Could have been the headline news this week, or any week. And as you read Genesis 14, you will realize that some things never change. Aren't we often consumed with power and might, with pleasurable gain? Isn't there always the temptation to snatch at things that look so good, and yet we know from God's word that they will not deliver? Genesis 14, behind all of the rulers and armies, behind the power and the might and the desire for gain, behind the big names and the big egos, we find that this is a story, a story that points us to the Saviour, Jesus Christ, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and to complete satisfaction in him. Just realizing that seven o'clock club's on, if anybody is heading to that, you can, uh, if you haven't picked up the signals, you you should go now, yeah. So the the chapter starts off with um, a story of war between kings, doesn't it? Now it's helpful to know that these kings are maybe not like the the image of a king that might come to mind, not like Charles, for example, ruling over a whole country or nation, but rather these kings would have been kings of of a walled city, each city having its own king. And a great big chunk of the text is given to what's happening on the political stage at this point in time. Maybe we shouldn't be surprised at that. If you were to look through your BBC News app, you would realize that much of that time is also given to what's happening on the political stage, isn't it? We see that in verse one. And we're told that prior to this, five kings that were making war with the four kings had actually been in an alliance. They used to serve Ched Lamar. That's the way things have, it would have worked back then. The stronger king would have had alliances with lots of smaller kings. Around and about him, the weaker serving the, the stronger king, they would have relied on his military uh, might in order to protect them. And they certainly didn't want his military might to be set against them. Without some money would have had to pass hands, maybe some goods as well, in order for this relationship to be kept sweet. And for 12 years, we read that these five kings had served Ched or Lamor. It, it might be different in the NIV, but in the ESV, it's Ched Lamor. But now they've had enough. They've thought to themselves, we don't want to be handing over all of our goods or lots of our goods. We think we can make it on our own. And so they join together and they think that they can break free. No longer will they have to pay into this other bigger king's coffers. We're told that in the 13th year they rebel. Who knows? Maybe they thought that they had got away with the rebellion. Seems that for a year all things were sweet. But then in the 14th year, Shadrach Lamar, intends to show that these rebellious kings have not cut away with it and that he is not someone to be trifled with. So he turns up to battle with his allies, having en route defeated many others, clearing the path as he went. We see that in verses five through to seven. And now Chedorlaomer and the three kings here with him arrive ready to battle the five rebellious kings. So we've got four kings against five. Now, the narrator gives us some interesting geographical info. We're told that the valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pits. That's like a sticky, oily substance. And so you can kind of predict what's going to happen, can't you? Someone is going to end up very messy. And so the question is, who is going to end up in the pit? Well, it's the five rebellious kings, isn't it? They are the ones who find themselves on the run. And the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, they were told that they fled, some falling into the pits, and the rest, they escape into the hill country. Verse 11. So the enemy, that's Lamar and the other kings are with him, they took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and, their, and all their possessions and went on their way. It's a story of kings, isn't it? Powerful leaders. It's a story of control and power grabbing. It's a story of wealth and pleasurable gain. And yet if we were to stop reading there, we'd be left wondering what on earth is this about? What has it got to do with Abraham, who we've been reading about for the last few weeks? I mean, how does this link in at all? What's it got to do with God's big story? And then we read verse 12. Look with me at verse 12. And they also took Lot, the son of Abraham's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions, and went their way. And it's at this point, that the penny drops, isn't it? It's like, ah, this is the reason. This is the reason we've got all the backstory, isn't it? Because we can get dazzled with all the kings, can't we? All of the the world leaders who demand control and submission, they're the ones that get the front pages of the newspapers, aren't they? The Bidens, the Putins, the trusses of the world. And yet, it's this little last line in the paragraph that really shows us where our focus should be. Our focus should be on God, on God's people, and God's promises. On God, on God's people, and God's promises. We can get so sidetracked with all that's going on in the world that we can easily miss the important details, because often they don't make the headlines. There's five kings warring against four kings, and the key detail in this whole text is this. There's one little man called Lot, and he's taken captive, And isn't that a reminder that that's our story? Amidst all that's happening in the world, wars, famines, hurricanes, floods, kings fighting, politics, loads and loads and loads happening. And yet, God has his people and his promises in view. Your family might never even feature in the Ulster Gazette. You might never have kept company with kings or queens. You might never have been invited to a palace, and yet you can be sure that God has his eye in a special way on his people. A special way. But I also want us to see that, just for a moment in passing, that actions have consequences. Remember last week we witnessed Lot choosing to settle near Sodom We're told that in in chapter 13, verse 12, that he'd moved his tent and settled among the cities of the valley. He had looked with his eyes and he had saw that it looked good. And we rightly noted the echoes of Genesis 3 and what Eve had done and how she'd done the very same thing. And then in 1313, we really need to to pick up this note because uh, the narrator wants us to know something really important. It says, Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. They were wicked and they were great sinners against the Lord. It's almost like the text is shouting out to us as the reader. It's saying, this is not a good idea. Like neon lights, this is saying, this is not going to end well. This is not a wise choice. Well, if we jump to 1412, it seems that lot hasn't just pitched his tent near Sodom, but now he's settled in Sodom. Do you see that? Verse 12, they also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, brother, who was dwelling in Sodom. He was dwelling in Sodom. He was living in Sodom. No longer had he pitched his tent near it. Now he seems to have set up home in it. And this was a city that was marked with wickedness and sin. And yet, Lot seemed content to settle himself and his family there. If you remember back to the summer, we looked at Psalm 1, didn't we? How does it start? It starts like this. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. As we think about Lot's choice, we think this is a very, very foolish place to settle. And maybe it's it's not dissimilar to a decision that you've taken in your own life, Maybe as you look back, you can see a very unwise decision and how it's impacted your life ever since. Maybe it was a job you took. Maybe it was a text you sent. Maybe it was a date you went on. Maybe it was a button that you pressed or clicked upon. We're all a lot like Lot, aren't we? We're a sinful people, lured by sin, finding ourselves trying to get as close as we can, and then sometimes we find ourselves in it. So what happens to a man like Lot? Someone who's messed up, someone who needs saved and rescued. Well, verse 13, then one who had escaped came and told Abraham the Hebrew, who was living by the Oaks of Mamre, the Am- Amorite, brother of Eschol and of Aner. These were the allies of Abraham. It's a great big chunk of text that's all about kings, isn't it? And yet, even as we read this verse, the, the narrator's almost giving us a little peek behind the curtains to see what's, what's really going on because although there's loads of kings here and they're all vying for, for control, they're all vying to get top shot, there's a little hint that there's something else going on in the background. That there's really a, a king of kings who rules over all things. There's really a a much, much bigger story at play, isn't there? And so in how the kindness of God works its way out in his providence, there is one who escapes and makes his way all the way to Abraham. Isn't this often how we see God at work, isn't it? Maybe you think about your own life and you think about all those coincidences that just happen to line up. For something to work out. And God still works in the same kind of way, doesn't he? Amidst the war in Ukraine, the energy crisis in Europe, the political turmoil in the UK, isn't this God still at work? So not by chance does one escape and bring word to Abraham. And so what does Abraham do after the familial unrest of chapter 13? Does he say to himself, well, God's made his own bed. He can lie in it. Serves him right. That could certainly be our temptation, couldn't it? So we look on at someone who's made a foolish decision and now they're reaping the consequences. We could say, well, you know, that was coming. Or does he say, oh, it's way too risky for me? Does he look inward at himself and say, well, I don't want to put my own life at risk? I don't want to put my own life on the line? I mean, that's certainly Abram's practice back in chapter 12, wasn't it? Think about it, when he passed off his wife as his sister, he was saying, I want to protect me. Has he learned anything from chapter 12? Well, we're told that when he hears of his kinsman's capture, he leaps to action. He gets his trained men together. Now, we're told that he's got 318 of them, and he sets off as far as Dan. And we're not told that just how many men Chad Lamar and his allies have, presumably a lot more than Abram, given that they had a whole year to plan and travel down for the attack. And remember, they'd been on a winning streak after battle, after battle, after battle. That doesn't seem to faze Abram at this point. He takes action and he comes up with some tactics. And so under the cover of darkness, he divides his forces so that they can come at the, uh, the enemy from different sides. And it works, he catches them off guard and he and his servants defeated them, and they pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Verse sixteen: He brought back all the possessions, and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. Wonder do you pick up on that language? Do you see it? Here we have the original kinsman redeemer, don't we? And we have the reality of the promises that were made back to Abraham, coming to fruition. Remember what God said to Abraham back in chapter 12? Well, God had said to Abraham, I will make your name great. Wasn't well, Abraham's name being made great? Aren't people ever so thankful for Abraham's rescue? Wouldn't they be cheering on Abraham at this point? Abraham, he's great. He's great. He's, he's a great lad. God said, I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. And here we have Lot becoming a beneficiary of the blessing that is upon Abraham. And so despite the circumstances, Abraham wins the battle against four warrior kings. God keeps his promises, doesn't he? He keeps his promises. Here Abraham wins and he returns bringing back not only Lot but all of the possessions that had been taken. And so you have to smile and say, isn't God good? The God of the Bible is a God who does what he says he will do. He will not be frustrated by the the plans of man or man's foolishness. This God will deliver. (laughs) But here as we look at Abraham, we also get a little glimpse of Jesus Christ. Surely as we look at Abraham, we might think, well, he could have easily said that Lot had brought this great calamity upon his own head and left them. But rather, Abraham left the comfort of where he was at great personal risk to himself and went out to seek and to save the lost. He risked his life to be a kinsman redeemer for his people, trusting in the promises of God. Doesn't that sound familiar? Doesn't that point you forward to Jesus this evening? Because aren't we just like Lot, choosing sinful paths ourselves, not deserving to be saved? And yet Jesus came down from heaven at great cost to himself, afflicted for his people so as to seek and to save the lost. He gave his life to be the great redeemer of his people. Jesus himself trusting in the promises of his heavenly father that he would crush Satan's head. You see how Abraham points us forward? Points us forward to Jesus. And so I wonder this evening, are you trusting in Jesus? Can you really say that Tonight you're putting your trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, the one to forgive you for your sin. He will carry you from this life into the next. But doesn't the Bible also challenge us who are Christians? Because as we look at the story of Abraham and as it points to Jesus, doesn't it, doesn't it ask us the question, are you actually willing to lay down your life for another? Self-sacrifice. Is that the the mark of my life? Is that the mark of your life? Think of the story told by Jesus of the good Samaritan. Wasn't he willing to go out of his way at considerable expense to himself, even considerable risk to himself, in order to show mercy to the man who had been beaten and left for dead? And what does Jesus say? Jesus says, go and do likewise. If we follow the pattern of Abraham, If we follow the the greater pattern of Jesus, well, then that will mean risking much, investing much, much much denying of self for the good of the kingdom. And so is that a mark of your life tonight? Can you think of examples this week past that you have died to self for the good of others and for the good of God's kingdom? Is it really impacting your life? Is it really impacting my life? Let's stop there because the passage goes on to tell us that on Abraham's return from battle, having won, he is met by two kings. Now, the first is the king of Sodom. Now, remember Sodom? We've, we've heard about that already this evening, haven't we? That's the, the place that the author has already reminded us that there's great wickedness. The men of Sodom were wicked and great sinners against the Lord. And so the king of Sodom is kind of the, the figurehead of wickedness here all that is wicked and evil we, we, we see in this king. And he's, he's the first to meet Abraham in his return after battle, isn't he? But before this evil and wicked king gets a chance to speak, we're introduced to another king. This is a king called Melchizedek. And we're told that he's the king of Salem. Salem, which would later become Jerusalem. Now, this king's Name means king of peace and king of righteousness. Do you see there, like, polar opposites? We've got one who is basically the king of wickedness and the other who is the king of righteousness. And he comes out as a priest of God most high and ministers to Abraham by giving him bread and wine. Abraham is hungry and thirsty after being out at battle. And notice that this is the first priest that we meet in the Bible, not one of the Levitical line but he's also a king, that's really significant. So we have this priest-king figure, and in a sense, he's a forerunner to Christ. In fact, if you look at Hebrews seven, it really talks about that really explicitly, this guy Melchizedek, and also it's mentioned in Psalm 110. And then the king blesses Abraham. This is what he said, blessed be Abraham, by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hands, and then we're told that Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. Notice that Melchizedek meets him in his moment of need. Here he is being greeted by the evil king, and presumably he's about to set before him the offer that we then meet in verse 21. But this priestly figure intervenes and ministers to Abraham. He brings out bread and wine. And this king blesses Abraham. That's really significant because the greater blesses the lesser. So here we have Melchizedek as the greater and the great father Abraham is the lesser. And so as a priest of God, he blesses Abraham. He gives God his rightful place and he attributes Abraham's victory to the hands of God. That's really, really key. And perhaps it was a really timely reminder for Abraham. And then look at Abraham's response. He accepts the blessing of this king, accepting the king as his superior. He accepts the bread and wine given to him. And not only that, he gives a tithe to this king, recognizing that as God's representative, he is worthy of it. Notice the contrast with the king of Sodom. See how he reacts? Look with me. As Abraham returns after rescuing his people and all of his stuff, you might expect the first words to be on this king's lips to be, thank you. <laughs> and yet, what does he say? No, this king doesn't say that. Even though Abraham is entitled to everything, after all, he was the one who conquered all the other kings, but rather, the king of Sodom says this, he says, give me. That's the first two words on his lips, give me, give me the persons but take the goods for yourself. This king offers no thanks to Abraham. He offers no thanks to Abraham's God or praise. And so the the first words attributed to him give us something of a measure of the man, don't they? He's controlling, he's proud, and he's godless. And yet even still, it must have surely been a tempting offer. Wouldn't it be? All the goods... Should I take them? The gold, the silver, the livestock. Be tempting, wouldn't it? Be tempting to say, yeah, well, we could come to an arrangement. And yet Abraham responds to the king by saying, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I should not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abraham rich. And I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshcol, and Mamre take their share. See that? Abraham won't even take as little as a shoelace. (laughs) That's what he says. And so you have to ask the question, why why is it that Abraham refuses to take anything from this king? He's taking gifts from other kings. Think back to Genesis 12, just a few weeks ago the king of Egypt, and he, well, he leaves there with a whole horde of gifts. So why not this one? Well, it seems the key to understand the reason comes from verse 23. It says, lest you should say, I have made Abraham rich. You see, Abraham seems to sense that by accepting the goods on offer here, it might give the impression that his riches were not as a result of the blessing of God, but rather at the hands of a godless, and wicked king. You kind of know how these things would work if he takes all the gifts. He might, in the future, look like he owes this wicked king something. Abraham didn't want in any way to have a sense of owing this pagan king. He was going to become rich. Yes, he he absolutely was. He was going to become a great nation. His name was going to be made great, but he was content to trust that God would bring this about, he knew that what God had promised, he would do. And he did not need to snatch at it ahead of time. He did not need to take a shortcut to get entangled with wicked and sinful men in order to get what God was gonna give him in a way. And so Abraham was absolutely right, wasn't he? Absolutely right to stay well clear. And there are times that we need to do exactly the same thing. Can we avoid doing business with everyone who's uh, not not a Christian? No, nor should we. But there are times, there are times when the wickedness of someone or an organization is is so blatant and extreme and so in the face of what God says to be right, that we should not want to have anything to do with it. Nothing. Well, it was surely tempting for Abraham, wasn't it? (laughs) To get rich quick. Wouldn't that be tempting? But here, Abraham refuses to take that road. And so I wonder this evening, are there temptations that you have areas in your life that you're feeling the temptation to take a road that you know is not the right road to go. Perhaps in business, you have the offer to enter business with someone else, the projected financial gains seem like a, a no-brainer, and yet you know that the business practices of the other, well, they're not exactly renowned for being squeaky clean. <laughs> the way that they record their accounts isn't quite, you know, the way that they treat their staff the way that they're happy to overcharge vulnerable customers. That might seem so tempting. It might seem like, well, could I not even for a little while? But will you trust in God to provide for your daily needs, to give you enough and obey his calling to righteous living rather than luxurious living? Perhaps it's in giving. We see Abraham tithing, don't we? Giving a tenth of all that he had All that he has to the king. So this evening, doesn't doesn't Jesus, the one true king, deserve our tithes? Doesn't he deserve our worship? You might say to yourself, well, you know, my salary isn't too big yet. (laughs) Maybe when I get more, well, then I'll I'll give more than a tenth at that point, and I'll make up for it. But surely God wouldn't want me to give at this point. Maybe your family's young at the moment, and you think, well. Do you know, things are a bit tight. Surely, surely God wouldn't want us to give at this point. Maybe you're a student and you think, well, I'm only getting, you know, a little bit in. Surely, surely God wouldn't want me to give out of this. Or maybe you're actually learning, earning quite a lot and you're thinking, well, surely, surely God wouldn't want me to give away that much. That's, that's a huge amount to the church. Maybe you think, well, I'll give next week. I just haven't got around to it this week. Maybe you've thought to yourself, well, I'm going to set up one of those direct debits. I'm going to get envelopes so that they can get gifted. There's no point in giving now because, you know, you miss out on the extra 20%. So whenever I get around to it, then, then, then I'll give. And month after month slips away and you do not give. And to be honest, you're not really bothered. Do you know why? Because you get all the money in your account and you think it looks really, really sweet there. It's easy to be tempted, isn't it? so easy so easy to grasp and try and get things that we are not to have or things that we are not to get yet rather than trusting in God's provision in trusting in God's promises and trusting in God's providential hand at work and so at the end of chapter 14 we have a question don't we and the question is this are we being tempted by satan or are we being satisfied with jesus are we being tempted by Satan, or are we being satisfied with Jesus? Oh, we know the allures that Satan sets in front of us all too well, don't we? Each of us, we know those. And maybe you're thinking, how can I resist? How can I not give in to the temptation? What does Jesus teach us? He teaches us to pray. He says, pray this, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That's how we're supposed to do it. We're supposed to pray and ask for God's help. And actually, doesn't Jesus, the great high priest, the king himself, also pray for us? Just like Jesus did for the disciple Simon Peter when he said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. What a wonderful thought for each of believer here this evening, that Jesus tonight is interceding for us. Isn't that incredible? We have the great high priest, the King of Kings, and he's praying for you by name that you may not fail. <laughs> this is wonderfully good news, isn't it? Wonderfully good news for me. Wonderfully good news for you. Let's pray. Father, we know only too well that Satan is seeking to sift us as wheat, but we pray that our faith may not fail, and that rather than giving in to temptations, that we would find deep satisfaction in Christ. Might this be true for all of us this evening. We ask this in his name. Amen.